Okay, so uh, chapter twelve is is the triumphal entry. It's the it's it's where Jesus shows up. I mean, things dominating, right? And 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 you've seen in chapter seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, every one of them, things are just getting more and more heated. And and Jesus is constantly in battle with the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Um, it, chapter eleven ends once again. They're plotting to kill Jesus. Uh, actually, they're plotting to kill Jesus, and even Lazarus is in trouble for being associated with them. Um, but uh, last last chapter, we learned so much with Lazarus' uh, resurrection and and all the discussion about resurrection. And now. Um, here we are. Uh, it's sometime later, right? Uh, six, actually, six days before Passover. So this is, and and remember, for the Jews, there was three big festivals that all the Jews were supposed to come in and celebrate together. They'd come in to Jerusalem from all over Judea and Israel, and and from far and wide, they would come in to celebrate these three: uh, the Pentecost, the the Passover. And the festival of boots, and and so these were these were big 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 events. There were others, Hanukkah, and others that we've actually read about, um, but uh, these were the big ones. And so here he is, six days, ch- chapter twelve, verse one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Okay, so he's coming through like any traveler. He's stopping, seeing once again his friends. Uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Um, here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. So, so a big dinner is thrown, and 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 we actually know from the other gospels. I believe it was Simon that. No, who was it? It was. Uh, it tells us who who actually threw the dinner for him. Uh, we hear from the Synoptic Gospels, and it says Martha served. You know, good old Martha. She's always serving. <laughs> she's always working things out. Always serving, and and. Uh, and Martha said, well, Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. When Jesus took about, a, excuse me, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. You know, this this was a very expensive perfume. Um, it, it was said to uh, be... Uh, Really, I mean, valued at a at a man's wages for a year. It was very, very expensive, um, very valuable. And this is, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? And it was worth a year's wages. He he did not say this because he cared about the poor. But he was a thief as a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, you know, the scene is, so so there's there's this big dinner thrown in honor of Jesus. And it's Bethany. Now, keep in mind, Bethany is a little town just outside of Jerusalem. In one sense, it's kind of a safe spot for Jesus uh, because he's being hunted now. He's being wanted. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to catch him. And... And he doesn't go directly into Jerusalem yet. He goes to Bethany. They throw a dinner for him. These are these are all the people who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. So 
this is you could say the base of his fan club here is all the people that 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 they love Jesus they so appreciate what he did and and they throw them this this dinner and Mary's is is cleaning his feet with her hair with a with a year's worth of wages of 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 pure nard and and um Judas is scared of course he he criticizes he's critical of it and and Jesus um tells them leave her alone Jesus replied it was intended that she should should save this perfume for the day of my burial you will always have the poor among you but you will not always have me and you know this this thing where where Judas you know, expresses his concern that this should be given to the poor. And it's funny because the Bible tells us, I mean, very rarely does the Bible tell us what's going on in somebody's heart, but here he, it totally exposes Judas's heart. And it says he, he wasn't concerned about the, the poor. That wasn't his motivation. It wasn't like he was somebody who cared. And, you know, unfortunately that happens a lot. You know, certain people, they'll, they'll say things, they'll do things as though they had an altruistic motive, but they really don't. There's really another motive. They want to be the ones who have a good idea, or they want to be the ones who save the world, or they want to be the ones who do this or that or are known for something. Or sometimes it's simply, and I think this was probably the case with with Judas, is that he just wanted to look good. I mean, just plain and simple as that. He wanted to look good, so he he says something, and, and it's always the cheap way to look good is to put, put down others is to criticize what somebody else is doing. It's, it's just a cheap way to look better, to maybe look spiritual, or to look like you're the righteous one, is to criticize and, sh- and throw in a bad light something somebody else is doing. And, you know, lo and behold, Jesus jumps right to her defense, you know, and says, basically, this is a good thing she's doing because she's honoring Jesus. And you cannot go bad with honoring Jesus. It's never wrong to honor Jesus. It's always right. And it's always good to honor Jesus. And and he makes a comment that the poor you will always have. In other words, you'll have plenty of opportunities. Now, I one thing I have to say, a pet peeve of mine, is that, that this line has been used sometimes why we shouldn't help the poor. As though that by the, Jesus saying the poor you will always have, Somehow that implies that he thinks okay, it's okay for people to be poor and that that's perfectly fine. And that is not the intent of this line. He's basically just saying, look, they'll have, you'll have other opportunities. They'll be around. They'll always be around. So you'll have many opportunities to serve the poor. But I have heard that, you know, especially in my role as CEO of Hope Worldwide, uh, I was told multiple times, you know, well, keep in mind the Bible says you, they'll always be poor and, you know, I don't, I think you're spinning your wheels if you're trying to eliminate the poor. And that's not at all the case. And, and in fact, really what I generally explain is there is the poor and the, and, and of course there will always be poor. And then there's extreme poverty. And that's extreme poverty is when people are trying to survive. They're just trying to get food. They're just trying to get clothing. They're just trying to get a shelter. You know, that's extreme poverty. And I don't think that's at all what Jesus was talking about. Well, first of all, that's not how he meant it. But even if even if he did mean it that way, that's not he wasn't describing the, the the starving or the hungry, which is the poverty that we can and absolutely should eliminate. Uh and we should get 
that. And well, does that mean we're going to eliminate poverty, all poor? No, no, they'll always be poor. And that's, that's just, Jesus was just stating a fact. And, and the fact is that there'll always be some behind, some ahead, some that are richer, some that are poorer. And that's just going to be the case. And it'll be for different reasons. You know, some people think people are poor because they don't work hard. Some of the hardest working people I've ever met are poor people. And, and it's not because they don't work hard. It's because they don't have the opportunities. And so, so I think those are important distinctions to make. But, you know, here's Judas trying to look good, trying to look spiritual, trying to look like a good guy. And, you know, Jesus, he doesn't slam Judas, but he definitely makes it clear. You know, he says, um, it was intended that she should save the perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And, and I think that, you know, the, the, the teaching there is just take advantage of having Jesus. Uh, anything you can get from Jesus, get from him. Anything you can do for Jesus, do for him. Anything with Jesus is generally good. It says, meanwhile, a large crowd of the Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in, in him. You know, so, so this, this event now, now Jesus, you don't know it yet by the, but by the end of this chapter, you're going to know it. Jesus is winding up his ministry. That's it. He is closing the shop down and, and, and wrapping up with the triumphal, you know, crescendo of his ministry. And so, what does he do right before that? Well, he raises Lazarus from the dead, which, you know, this is almost like the opposite of what he did at the beginning, where he wouldn't even want anybody to tell anybody about the miracles he did. He didn't, and he wouldn't accept the title of Messiah. And he was very quiet about it and telling people to keep secrets. Well, now he's in full-blown view. He's at festivals, and he's so well-known that, that uh, he probably can't even necessarily speak to the crowds unless he's up on a mountainside or something because the crowds are so thick. Well, Bethany's a small town and but but it's definitely even Bethany is drawing the crowd, right? They all want to come and hear him. They all, they all are believing because why? Because of the miracle. So Jesus now 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 the big shift. And this is this is huge. It says the next day the great crowd that had come from for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Okay, so all the people that are coming in for the festival to Jerusalem, and it's packed. You know, I mean, if you could picture the crowds and the families and everybody's there, and and they hear that Jesus is right over here in Bethany, and he's coming to town. And, and, and part of this is just, wow, because it's so amazing, because here's Jesus who's being hunted. He's a wanted man. I mean, if this were modern times, there'd be wanted posters all over him. There'd be a show looking for him there. You know, everybody's looking for Jesus and everybody knows that the Pharisees are trying to find him and kill him and his friends, Lazarus, you know, because they're trying to squelch this talk about him raising somebody from the dead. And it says the next day, the great crowd, well, I'll keep reading. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. 
as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And, and so this is, this is, there's a, there's a whole bunch of background stuff going on here. First of all, you know, the, the, they're, they're waving the palms. And I mean, he's the conventional wisdom would be sneak into town because you're being hunted. You know, you're being wanted. Um, conventional wisdom would be don't tell anybody you're coming. He does the opposite. Everybody knows he's coming and the crowds are forming and he's riding in and they're singing Hosanna, which, which really literally means save us, you know, but, but it, it had taken on a new meaning, uh, of bless us or take care of us. And, and it was definitely, it was the, it was the, the greeting of a triumphal king. Except though, a triumphal king would normally ride a horse if he was uh, coming for a physical battle. But here he's riding a colt, a donkey, which is more a king coming in peace. Now, when we, we generally look at donkeys as kind of a goofy animal and we don't think of donkeys as something a king would ride on, but they did in those days. And there are plenty of examples in the Old Testament of of high-powered figures riding donkeys. Donkeys were considered a noble animal, noble work animal, and more the 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 poor man's steed, so to speak. But but um, but still an honorable animal, but more humble than a stallion, more humble than than riding a horse, and so not necessarily the picture of power, really much more the picture of peace, the 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 picture of humility. And peace, but yet still noble, and and so they're singing, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel." Um, they're they're pronouncing him the King. You know, I mean, you, you have to understand how threatening this is to all the people of power in Jerusalem, including the Romans. Now, they're not they're not fired up about having another king. And blessed is King Israel. Jesus found a young donkey sat on it, as is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And this is referring back to a scripture in Zechariah that talks about the Savior, the one who will usher in the victory of the Jews, riding, will be riding a donkey, a, a, a young donkey, a colt. And so he's, he's absolutely referring and fulfilling all the prophecies about him. And I'll say this is that, that, you know, some people, they'll criticize the Bible and say, well, Jesus purposely did things to fulfill the prophecies. So how can you boast that he fulfilled the prophecies? It is true that he purposely did things to fulfill prophecies, but there were many prophecies that I'm sorry, were completely out of his control. Like, his birth, you know, like where and how he would born be born and what would happen to him as a baby. All of that was prophesied. Babies don't set that up. So, so yes, he, he was intentionally fulfilling prophecies here, but there are many others that happened, including his death as well, that how he died, when he died, what happened when he died, all of the, the manner of his death, all of those things were out of his control, so to speak. And, and he fulfilled all the prophecies about them. So, so here he is fulfilling prophecies. And it says, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize 
did they realize that, um, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Uh, these things have been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So as is often the case, the, the, the disciples, they don't get what's going on exactly, you know, and, and they get more and more later. And that that is always true. I mean, you're not going to get everything in this chapter today, but later on you'll get more and then later on you'll get more. I mean, literally, as I prepare each one of these classes, I read through, I go back over commentaries, I go back, I look at, I look through old notes, through old classes, other times that I've taught this, and there's a lot of stuff that's refresher, and then every time there's something new, there's something, oh my gosh, I never noticed that. Wow, look at that, you know? And even, I mean, honestly, you know, any one of these chapters, we literally could probably do about four or five classes out of it. Um, but I'm trying to keep these two under 30 minute classes. Um, so now chapter verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went to, went out to meet him. Okay. And, and again, remember the language. It's a sign. It's a sign. Okay. Just, and just like you think of a sign. You know, if, if you're trying to go somewhere, you look for a sign on the road that says it's that way, right? So these these miracles are signs saying he's the Messiah. Salvation is that way. He's the one. So that's the, all these miracles are signs of this, and that's how they're reading him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And... uh. It's almost a comical scene here. It's uh, if you if you saw the gladiator, you remember when there's a scene where uh, uh, where the gladiator gives this other guy his life, and somebody yells, um, "What was his name? Uh, uh, something the merciful," and everybody starts yelling, "Merciful, mercy!" and 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 the emperor who's evil, and you know, and he's like, they. They liked him more. I'm so vexed. That's the first time I really actually took that word serious was from that scene in the movies. I'm vexed. I'm so vexed. And he's, he's like, they like him more than me, you know, and it's just kind of a, what a pathetic figure, you know, and this is kind of how it is here. You know, that, that, that the, uh, the, the Pharisees are just like, we can't stop this guy. Everything he does, the people love, and he just keeps growing in popularity even though we're trying to shut him down. And in that last statement, look, the whole world has gone after him, has, has, has gone after him. That's just, that's classic John using irony. I mean, this is, this is where John is brilliant, you know? And of course, and the word that uses the whole world, by the way, is the same way it stated that for God so loved the world and gave his only, his only begotten son. Um, it's the same, it's the same kind of phrasing. It's the same people, a listener would remember that, you know, that, 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 that Jesus died for this world. And this is the world that, that God has loved. And this whole world is coming after Jesus. Now we know literally it's not the whole world and the whole world didn't even know who he was, but the figurative speech is everybody we know is following Jesus is looking into him. Now, Jesus predicts his death. So the, now verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to, to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was v- from Bethsaida in Galilee, 
with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. I love this scene because now the, by the way, it says there were some Greeks. You get the idea. These are not Jews. I mean, they could have been, but I doubt it because, um, you know, Greeks, remember they had conquered the world and their whole thing was make the world Greek. And so, um, Greeks, Greeks kind of opened the world up to, to Greece, at least you know, to, to travel. And, and the Romans are the ones that created Pax Romana, you know, where all of a sudden, and I mean all of a sudden, because for thousands of years, you couldn't just travel anywhere. You'd get robbed by bandits. You'd get held up by pirates on the sea. You just, it was very dangerous and barbaric world. Barbarians everywhere, so to speak. But with Rome conquering the known world, well, first Greece conquering it, then Rome conquering it, and building roads and everything, all of a sudden you could travel anywhere and you could, you could go all over the place and be safe because the Romans were in control. And so Greeks, uh, who were kind of the, you know, the elite in, in many ways, although they were also enslaved by Romans, but, but intellectually the elite and, and the thinkers that had laid the foundation of, law and thought and so many other things, they like to travel. They they traveled a lot. And so these are probably tourists. I mean, and it sounds kind of funny, but they're probably Greek tourists. They probably came to check out the festival of the Jews and and write about it and learn from it. And they were always in search of knowledge and understanding. They they wanted to gather they gathered knowledge the 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 way most people will have a collection or something, you know. They want to know everything about everything and and understand everything. So here is a group of Greeks. They go to Philip, which is interesting. Why Philip? I don't know. The only thing I could think is 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 that he's got a Greek name. So they might figure, well, he's, you know, he his name is Philip, which is not a Semitic name. It's a Greek name. So let's go talk to him. And, um, and then, of course, he, he approaches Jesus. And Jesus launches into a discord, an important discord. Um, it's God's discourse, not discord. Um, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Remember he's been saying up till now, my hour has not yet come, you know, way back in chapter two, way back at the wedding in Cana, we, we, he said, my hour has not yet come. And he says this multiple times. Well, now look at what he's saying. The hour has come. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. So now I want you to notice, where are we in the gospel of John? We're, we're in chapter 12. We're barely past halfway. We still got another 40%, 45% of the gospel to go before we get to John chapter 21. And we're already at Jerusalem the week he's going to be crucified. We're already at the last days of Jesus' ministry. So the entire last half of, of the Gospel of John is that week, is that time, that and mostly the night before Jesus crucified, and then it's crucifixion. So you can you, you have to just, as a student of the Bible, stop and ask, okay, what does this mean that John would make half his Gospel 
about the week that Jesus was crucified, the night before he was crucified, and the crucifixion. How significant is that, that we understand that? And everything in the Bible is there for a purpose. So that's always one of the questions. Why is this here? Why is this written this way? Why is this said this way? Why is this placed where it's placed? Why does, why, 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 you know, why of the, of the many, many things that, that Jesus said, why did this get recorded? And what is this for me to understand? What is in it for me? So this is what I'm always asking you guys to do is ask that why. And, you know, when Jesus asks a question, ask another one right back. Why did he say that? And who's he speaking to? And what does this mean for me? So, so he says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So what what you see is, you know, with every chapter, things get more and more intense. So, you know, it's like we've started out in the beginning, we're going 20 miles an hour. And then with each chapter, we go to 30, then 40, then 50, then 60, then 70. Things are going faster and harder. And, and you sense it in what Jesus is saying. You know, he says, look, now is the time. Okay, we, we've reached that hour now. This, everything has been up to, it's been pointing and preparing for this hour. And, and is it a, literal hour no it's it's a figurative to hours the the time it's another way of saying okay it's time now you know this is the time and he says you know unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies it remains only a single seed this concept is a very powerful concept and in, in a lot of ways you could say that it describes the christian life i mean first there's jesus right who comes and and gives his life as a ransom for our lives. He 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 pays the price of our sins. He offers himself as a sacrifice for ours for our sins and our iniquities. He paves the way of life. He paves the way with his teaching. But ultimately what he does is he gives his whole life for us and because of that all those witnesses that saw what he did, saw what, heard what he taught, watched him die, they became like little seeds that scattered the gospel all over the world. And for the next several hundred years, the church was just spreading from this backwater little country in the middle of the Middle East where three continents connect and it shot out into every continent. And the church spread and became you know, a global movement, all because that one seed died, because Jesus gave his life for this. And the witnesses, they gave their lives. All of the apostles were sentenced to death. All of them were executed. John survived his execution, but technically he was still executed. Um, he's, it was a failure execution, but all of them died for the gospel as did many, many, many other Christians that too many to, to remember, too many to name, but that's what spread. And somebody once said that, that the blood of the martyrs 
was like fertilizer to the gospel, the seed of the gospel. It just caused the church to grow that much more and more and more in Christianity to spread around the world. But that means that there has to be a willingness to die. There has to be a willingness to die or it ends with you and you're a dead end Christian and you have to be willing to die. And, and, and I think probably the hardest place and time to be a Christian is in a comfortable setting. You know, I just was reading uh, for my class, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's um, Life Together, which is a classic writing of of Bonhoeffer. And, and he describes what a Christian community should live like based on what he was doing with a group of seminarians. And and you have to know that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, was, uh, was basically teaching and doing all this in 1930s Germany, right? So this is during the rise of Hitler. And as Hitler becomes more powerful, he takes control of the church. Bonhoeffer is openly critical of Hitler, and he forms, well, not he, but they form a, an underground church. And he's describing in his book the, the, the community of the church. And it's very intense. It's, it's very, but, but you understand that the church is thriving underground because it's surrounded by enemies hunting it down. And, and there's something about danger. There's something about persecution that is purifying. It's cathartic. And it makes Christians really decide, what do I believe? And do I believe this? And if you're willing to lay down your life for what you believe, there's an incredible power in that. And I remember, you know, when I, when I decided to go in the ministry, I, I fully believed that I would die preaching the gospel, that I would probably be killed in some foreign country, uh, out preaching the gospel and kind of romanticized, you know, I'm up on a, up on a rock or something, preaching at a park and, Somebody shoots me or something, you know, that's kind of what was my vision. It was kind of the, the glorious exit, you know, of, of the, of a preacher. And, 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 um, we went through a lot, a lot of challenges, just planting churches around the world and many scary times and, and many life threatening situations for sure. I mean, Michelle almost died a couple of times. Um, I've, you know, from, exotic diseases, dengue fever, and, and I've been, you know, almost killed and all this stuff that, that, that's happened, but it, it keeps your Christianity strong and it makes you really stand strong and you want to preach and you want to get it out there. Cause you're in a sense, kind of in fighting mode, you're fighting for Jesus. What happened? I remember when we moved back to the United States, it really scared me because I thought, Oh no, it's going to be too easy to be a Christian in the United States. Nobody persecutes you. Nobody cares you're a Christian. And, 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 and Christian beliefs aren't necessarily controversial. And they're accepted. And most people call themselves Christians whether or not they follow Jesus. And there's such a mixed up understanding of what a Christian is. They don't even really know what you mean when you say you're a Christian. And, you know, in our church, we use the word disciple all the time to distinguish us, to, to be distinct, you know, that we, we are not just Christians, people who believe in Jesus, but we're people who really follow Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. And, and I think that, that this is one of our great challenges. And I fully believe that in the future, 
we're going to face a lot of persecution again. And it'll be because of some of our Christian beliefs. Some of the things Jesus taught, some of the things in our faith are not popular and are not socially accepted. And and they will cause us to be persecuted once again. But I think that, that, that um, you know, Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. We, we had to be careful about, about the fact that it's too easy to be a Christian, you know, and, and pray that we understand that we can still lay down our lives for what we believe. And, and that, that takes a different form in peacetimes. Laying down your life, uh, it, it can mean denying yourself. It means, you know, saying no to yourself and, and, and not being selfish, but being selfless, you know, that, that, that is, and that is a, an important part of Christian maturity growing is learning how to deny yourself, learning how to consider others better than yourself. Philippians 2 describes it very well of looking into the interest of others, not just yours, taking on the attitude of Christ Jesus, right? So I don't want to get too far off on that, but, but that is an, a, this is a very powerful teaching. That's one of the most I, I don't know. I dare not say most, but it is it is it is a pillar, pivotal teaching of Jesus, and you don't understand the cross unless you understand this, and you don't understand how we carry the cross. You know, one of the phrases that Luke records that Jesus said was, "Anyone who come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and carry it daily." Right. So we we so denying yourself, taking up your cross, is being that seed that dies, right? He says, while anyone, and then he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Okay, and this is even a little more detail on this. If you're so caught up in your life, you're going to lose it. And he says, but while anyone who hates their life in this world, and it's the same this world, right? This this world will keep it. For eternal life. If you're willing to give it up, then you're going to be blessed with it. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. So this is this this is what we call the Calvary walk, right? The the Via Dolorosa, the walk, the path to the cross. Christians should live on this path. We should live on this path. That we crucify ourselves that we take up our cross, that we allow self to die in the service of others, in loving others. Um, you know, the popular teaching is love yourself. Jesus said, deny yourself. That's one of the ways, one of the many ways where the world teaches the opposite. Now I get it. A lot of times when people say love yourself, what they mean is, is don't don't be self-hateful. And God would not want us to hate ourselves either. Not in that sense. But in the sense of it's not about self. Our world is so caught up in the pursuit of pleasing self. And that even, even God, the world, puts lowers and says, okay, do you please me? Are you good for me? And, and even a lot of churches have taken that tone, you know, be the best, best version of you. And it's all about you. And churches send out flyers. They look like they're the YMCA and how I, the church can serve you. 
and help you and better you and, and better your life and be a blessing to you and serve you. Jesus said he did not come to be served. He came to serve. What the church is supposed to be is the place where you go to be trained to serve others, where you learn how to lay down your life for others, not the place where you go to be entertained and served. And it's, it's that's that's the that's kind of the epitome of American Christianity, the modern Christianity. That is not at all what what Jesus taught and what Jesus set up. So he says, whoever serves me must follow me. In other words, we got to be like him, that we lay down our lives, that we sacrifice it all. We give up everything for him. And he says, and where I am, my servant also will be. So if Jesus is on the cross, we're going to be on the cross. If Jesus is sacrificing everything, we're going to sacrifice everything. He says, my father will honor the one who serves me. God will take care of us. I know God's going to take care of me. He always has. And multiple times, Michelle and I have been asked to give it all up, leave everything, and go preach somewhere else. And we've done it. And we've never been without. God has always taken care of us. He always does. And I've seen it in a thousand other people. And that's who we are. We're Jesus' people. So much more here. And I'm only halfway through. Um, I'll read this next part and then we'll end there. He says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. After he just said, you know, you got to lay down your life. You got to give it all up so that others can live. And now he's doing it. Now you see him doing it. He says, should God, should I ask to be relieved, to be set free of this hour? No. It was exactly for this reason I came. Let's glorify God. Let's glorify God. So we'll stop there and continue tomorrow.